The following podcast contains adult themes and topics. Yes, we're going to talk about adults and their learning habits. What did you expect? We are Natalia. I'm Ida. I'm Bogdan. And together we invite you to join our non-formal talks. Hello, hello. Welcome to our seventh episode of Non-Formal Talks. And uh, today we are back, three of us. Ida is back to us. Hello, everyone. It's good to be back. It's great to have and you back. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. And today we discuss <laughs> experience, experience within experiential learning. So uh, my question to both of you is actually, what do you consider as experience in experiential learning? Can you maybe share a few thoughts? Uh, if I am to start, I will start with the, the most uh, academic approach, let's say. I will, I will talk. <laughs> as always. Yeah, as always. <laughs> no, it, it's, I think it's in interesting to look at the etymology of the word because it also gives us a little bit uh, of a direction, let's say. Before we explain what it means as a practitioner experience to us, maybe it's good to also look at etymology. So, for example, we could look at experience from the Latin perspective, uh, thinking about uh, experientia, uh, which thinks kind of gives us a, a, a sense of trial, proof, or experiment. So this idea of trying, testing something. Uh, mm. But but this word uh, exper expereri, which is also in Italian, it also has this um, uh, root which is periculum. So it's a similar root with the word pe periculum, which means peril or danger. So very interesting to see a little bit that there is also mm. that dimension in it. Um, what is interesting if we move from the Latins to the Greek is that the Greeks say uh, empeira, uh, so empirical. So it's about raw, unreflective sensations. Uh, it's about dealing with specific uh, universal, uh, not universal. So you, we're dealing with something very, very concrete. Uh, so it's, it's personal uh, in a way for, for the Greeks. This experience is something really individual. And it's, not, it's something that you may not even be able to communicate to others. And I will mm. finish with this uh, etymological part by looking at the German. Because the German has a very, um, very interesting approach. They have two, two, two words that could be considered um, the roots of a word experience. So one word is Erlebnis. Uh, Excuse my 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 German, uh, and and There's so many languages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can, we can excuse you, Bob, if we don't speak yeah. any of those. <laughs> and the root is the, the word here. The the uh, the root is Leben, which means life. So it's the root for mm. life. Okay. Mm. So it denotes lived experience. So something that is lived, uh, something that mm. is immediate in a way. It's something that we may even say it's pre-reflection. So you don't even get to think about it. It's just something that you experience. And then the second word mm. is Erfahrung. So here where the, the, the root word is far, which means journey. So here we're mm. talking about more uh, sort of a collective uh, uh, dimension er, and an a reflective dimension of, of experience. Mm. So it's interesting to see a little bit how these words are, you know, uh, telling us a little bit of what could be experience. So that's the etymological mm. part. Now, I don't know, I pass it back to you as practitioners. How do you see, maybe even make a connection <laughs> to what I was just saying. Maybe there is something that, that uh, sparks uh, uh, an idea. Okay, what sparks, Ida, to you from, from this well, etymology? 
I feel like before I move on to my role as practitioner, I feel like I want to bring us quickly to this anecdote I have in my head, because I feel like everything that Bogdi said, it connects to what I was thinking about more on an abstract level when I was thinking about experience. Uh, and there is this scene. I know I don't know if you have seen this Narnia movie, this first Narnia movie, or read the books about Narnia. I mean, the whole story of... Yeah, perfect. The whole story of Narnia, of course, is this thing that there are two worlds, kind of the real world where these kids live. And then there is Narnia, which is this other world that they find and that they step into and that they interact with. And there is this... It's probably the most famous scene, I think, from Narnia. It's from the first book or the first film when Lucy, this young child, when she meets Narnia for the first time and when she steps into Narnia. And it's this very famous scene where she enters through the world to the word through the wardrobe into this world and there it's this she she comes from another from a house from another place and she enters into this winter wonderland so there is this immediate i think um moment when she comes to narnia which is the kind of physical experience of cold of snow of being in a new place of the forest of everything that is new and unexpected and then um she meets this, um, is it a fawn? She meets this creature that lives in Narnia and she interacts actively with this other, um, with this person. Um, so her experience in Narnia is not just the physical experience, which is an important part of it, but it's also her like interaction, interaction with the world and her, how she kind of behaves with what she meets there. And then of course she goes back, she leaves Narnia and she has this and this is where I think it connected to what Bogdi said, this very individual experience. And later there will be other people who also experience Narnia and they will have very different experiences. But somehow for me, what makes this scene interesting, if we look at it in a way educationally and use it as a metaphor for education, is this, um, I think, moment of stepping into something that is there, it's created, it's but it's new, it's unexpected. and you don't get the full experience of Narnia unless you interact actively and you kind of participate in Narnia. And then all these things that she kind of gets from this experience, she can bring with her further on. Um, so I think for me, this is in a way a metaphor for, for the concrete experience as part of, um, yeah, as, as an experience. Uh, and there's a fun, just to say, when we, before we talk about education or connecting to education, I have a very clear memory of once in a training course recreating the Narnia landscape and I don't remember exactly for what purpose but I remember this moment of creating the lamp, the lamp post in the middle of the room mm. to, to kind of recreate this in a way physical um, space um, to, to emphasize an experience. All right. Uh, thank you for sharing your <laughs> this great metaphor for, for experience, <laughs> but perhaps uh, coming to the practice of education. Um, what do we count as a legitimate experience in experiential learning? Just maybe an example. In my case, for instance, I can also share maybe an experience where I was a learner. And I can definitely connect to, to this unexpectedness uh, of experience. And I guess this is a great uh, feature, which often is there when we speak about experiential learning. And I remember that was a training course 
where we did this limit 20 exercise and for those who is not familiar with limit 20 this is uh, an exercise which consists of uh, i think eight or ten different uh, small uh, games which are basically manipulated to let participants experience how and why discrimination happens and basically there is a small favorable group there is like in between and there is one which is constantly experiencing uh, all the hard uh, <laughs> uh, core of discrimination mm-hmm. and what may happen and what happened to me that also with every round when you lose in these games you also lose a team member and the extreme of it is when <laughs> only one person is left from this group and i remember that this unexpectedness was um, very striking for me uh, together with the whole experience Um, Mm. and in this case i would call experience the whole setting of uh, this the whole sequence of these games through which we went as a as a bigger group Mm. and when uh, willing or not Mm. but we were somehow reproducing uh, certain patterns of society uh, when intentionally or not we basically created this discriminatory system within the exercise. Mm. So this is what I could Mm. recall as experience as a learner. And I guess this is one of the toughest, Mm. but also perhaps one of the greatest learning experiences when it comes to discrimination, at least it, it, Mm. but it felt really heavy and Mm. hard back then. What about Mm. you? I think experiences are also interesting. I mean, as you say, when they somehow mimic something that exists as a pattern in society. So there are also these exercises that I really like, which are about inequality in society, wealth distribution, these kind of things where you you create in a way a mini society and you create certain rules, but they are all inspired by the rules or the distribution in real life. And I think what makes the experience an experience in this kind of exercise is the fact that it's not real life. They might be reproducing arguments or behaviors from from the re- from real life, but they are not actively doing it. Um, let's say they. I mean, if you do a, a simulation about wealth distribution and you are put in a certain role, in the experience, you are pushed to act according to that role, uh, and not according to what you would do in real life. Because maybe in real life you have a certain job and you pay certain taxes and whatever, and you know how to relate to it in real life. But what the experience does, it does, it, it pushes you in the role that you have, in the setting that is created. And this, in the ideal case, it can support participants to think, in, think about something in a different way. Because normally in life, we just kind of walk through life and we approach it from our perspective. But in a good experience, in a good setup, you are pushed to think about it in a different way. Or you are pushed to act in a way that maybe you wouldn't do in other ways. And I think in this Limit 20 example, I think what can happen is that someone who is on the winning team is super excited because they're winning and they maybe forget or they don't realize that actually it's all set it's all a, a staged situation and they are just winning because of the rules not because they are amazing and i think these dynamics are very interesting when when it kind of fools not fo- yeah it fools people sometimes to to act in unexpected ways and to yeah to meet new challenges I guess it's partially true when it comes to uh, role playing, for instance, when you just get a role and perhaps you need to stand to this role in order to create the experience. But in case of simulation activities, 
when something is simulated or manipulated. Uh, for me, perhaps here we have this ethical question whether it's ethically or not to create this experience for participants and to let people go through it. Uh, but I would actually argue, I think in this limit 20, people pretty much mm. behave, reproduce real life patterns. Mm. As at least myself, I did, and I know that many people did. Mm. It's exactly because of the fact that there are this sequence of um, mm. stupid games and people go basically upwards from mm. uh, frustration to giving up because they don't understand the rules to cheering up when they start winning. <laughs> Mm. I think my point. I think my point is more that in real life you might be someone who always wins because of the structure of society, but in this kind of exercise you might be put in a position where you always lose, and this is something that might be mm. new to you as an experience. And this is why experiential learning is so powerful, because it can kind of put people in new positions and they have to relate to each other in a different way that they might yeah. not do. But even if you are, if you if you are still in the same role. I guess it's still beneficial because mm. you see yes, immediately yes. those who are on the other side, which in real mm. life doesn't oft, oft, always yeah, happen. That's true. Happens. Uh, Bogdi, I know yeah. that you do a lot of experiential learning, especially <laughs> when it comes to outdoor education. I don't know any insights from that part of experience. Mm, let, let me start with what you were saying a bit earlier, because uh, I find it interesting, especially this challenging part mm. about, you know, the tricking people or, you know, Actually, what I find, in my understanding, what happens is that we are not tricking. It's, it's simple, the minds <laughs> that are tricking us. And, and let me come back to my <laughs> beloved theory. By the way, just to, to say a few words. <laughs> yeah, please do laugh about me. Um, when I started with the etymology, and, and I'm going to say a few words now and make that connection also with outdoor, basically... Um, it comes, these elements, let's say, they come from uh, Beyond Learning by Doing, uh, a book called Beyond Learning by Doing, Theoretical Currents in Experiential Education by J.W. Roberts. Um, and I really, when I read this book, I, I had, a, a, um, I would say, a renewed understanding of mm. what, what experience means and also how we've looked at experience throughout the time. So some of the elements that you mentioned by, by now in, in, uh, in this particular case of limit 20, you talked quite a little bit about the emotions and, and uh, uh, how powerful they are in, in kind of shaping a little bit what is happening and how people uh, react and so on. And, and this belongs somehow uh, from, in my understanding, and again, trying to make a parallel with, with this book, uh, to the romanticism, to the romantic current uh, uh, in the theory, because there, Actually, uh, this is what they are saying that the, the you know the higher value uh, on, on the role of emotion and, sen and sentiment in life and learning is really there when it comes to experience. And basically, um, what they say actually is that learning uh, is outside the mainstream. So in a way, it's a conscious form of rebellion, right? Having a, a, an experiential learning is also a way to rebel against the system, which is more traditional mm -hmm. and focuses more on the head. So here. We can see that the role that emotions can play, especially when we put people in a position of being discriminated against, right? You, you can see what, what it does to, to us. So that, that's one way to, to look at it. Now, the pragmatist uh, current is more looking at, uh, you know, at how there is no, let's say, a, a general pill to solve mm. everything. Like each case in itself is unique. 
And here as well, if you think about limit 20, we often as trainers, we ask ourselves, but you know, when is that moment when one of the participants will realize what we are doing to the whole thing, you know, like to this manipulation part, and it's mm. going to actually rebel against it, it's going to do something different, you know, it's kind of go out of the pattern that we have created for them to, to follow. And now if you look in the critical current, the critical current talks more about actually taking action. So combining action, reflection with action. So actually doing something about it. So coming back to, to this moment as well, when does experience, when we do we look at experience in a critical way and, and realize that, uh, and I, I quote some of the people in the book said, people can be wrong in their perceptions because of the social world around us. So again, the critical current is telling us that everything around us socially that has been socially constructed has been also constructed in order <laughs> to somehow deceive us. So our role as critical thinkers is to look what are the flaws in the things that are around us in order for us to get out. So again, Limit 20 is fantastic for such an example, such a powerful experience that if we look critically at what is happening to us, we may be able to somehow step out of those patterns. And you are talking about those patterns just a little bit. Uh, so you're saying that in real life, we're also tricked. Yes, this is the, at <laughs> least at least the, the critical perspective, <laughs> especially through Freire was one of the, let's mm. say, one of the, uh, you know, leaders in this. This is what it says is that we are systematically mistaken or misled by the type of society that we live in. Uh, so <laughs> here we have all the power, all uh -huh. the power relations that are created there. And you can imagine the mm. power relations that are in limit 20. Mm. Again, now I think that we are stimulating you, uh, whoever is <laughs> listening, to actually look at what is this Google limit 20 it. thing anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah. Or just look at the Council of Europe <laughs> website and you will come across it as one of the... Mm. But this is mm. what it says, that culture is actually too strong for us to resist mm. it. Uh, and again, I leave this as a seed for, for, you, for us to, to mm. further reflect about it. Now, when it comes to, to, to the outdoor dimension and when we look about, you know, creating experiences in, in the outdoor, the, the, the big issue that I face uh, nowadays at the, and, and I am struggling as a practitioner and I'm looking at what can I do and how can I make sure that my participants get still the best out of the experience mm. is this what we call the normative current, which is a more... Um, recent and more, let's say, uh, yeah, contemporary current. And uh, let's say an element uh, of it, which is very, very well known, is this neo-experiential uh, education. Um, and to tra translate it into human uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> language, uh, we can call it the commodified experiential learning. <laughs> yeah, then, then hold That's on to your very, pants, yeah. uh, it will be the uh, McDonaldization of now experience. Now we understand. Meaning exper <laughs> yeah, experience can be, you know, it's everywhere mm. and you can just go on mm. and get it. So let me give you an example. So you organize an activity outdoor. It can be anything. It can be a hike. It can be low ropes. And people will show up and mm. they will show up in a similar way, again, uh, just like they go to a shopping mall where they can just pick whatever mm. they fancy from the shelf and just pick it, take it over and then go home and then consume it, biscuits, whatever. So they would show up in the same and say, ah, I don't want to do this walk because it's about 12 hours walk. I don't want, you know, mm. like, so they only would choose whatever they consider is, is, is for them. Uh, or they would just come on the contrary. They would come for the thrill, you know, oh, there's something exciting here. I can go and, and get it and, you know, like get my shot of, of adrenaline and that's it. 
So here, the, the challenge that I see for myself as a practitioner is how to move from, you know, from this idea that, you know, you can just simply come and consume, mm. how to present the experience in a different way, how to set up the, the how to maybe shift a little bit the mindset of participant to, to see the experiences as a source of learning, because in the end, that's why we talk about and why, why we put it as, as you know, part of this idea of the cycle that we spoke mm. about the last time, experiential learning, that it's really a source of, of learning. Mm. And I would even say it's a metaphor. I go back to, to your previous question, you know, how, how do you set it up? And you were very brilliantly explaining how, you know, how you, it actually connects to real life. So, so it's important to say, okay, that walk in the forest, it's not just a walk in the forest. It's more than a walk in the forest. But people need to be able to see it in that way. And maybe a little bit of guidance is, is also needed from my side to make sure that people understand where the connections are and where, you know, those moments that you can really make the bridge with real life in order to realize. Mm. And I try, I try to do that as much as possible because I realize that more and more of the participants really show up, you know, uh, for the hike with, with shoes that they need to use for going to a wedding. And it it's really It's also happened. an experience to hike in high heels. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, it's absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's up to you how you want to do it, but but it's uh, you know it, it is true that it's a challenge uh, to 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 work with this. It's funny because if Lucy in Narnia would have known that if she enters the wardrobe, she will enter this world full of like crazy things and snow and war and whatever, she probably would not have joined either, and somehow she joined because yeah. it was the surprise element and she didn't know what to expect and she thought, oh, this is cool. And then yeah. the experience kind of fell on her. Okay, uh, now when we're speaking about that already, maybe some reflection. Uh, what makes experience a good experience, engaging for participants? How do you construct it in a way that it's attractive and has this educational value? Yeah, I, I, think, I think there's the, um, the emotional dimension that is important, making sure that whatever happens uh, in, you know, with the group there is um, uh, an emotion that would surface because these these usually are connected with the thoughts uh, and that that being able to make that connection uh, i think uh, in especially in the reflection uh, reflective part that would be something that would obviously spark uh, uh, some some learning but i also think that what you already mentioned earlier actually this this idea of mimicking somehow reality creating a situation that is not really very different it's Yes, a role play or a simulation may seem a little bit artificial. For, peop for many people, it's a bit hard to get into this new position, new role, etc. But, but most of the time, people would react according to the way they behave on a, on a daily basis. And that's already a very good material to work with. I think the key in the end in the experience is how you work with it after it actually things happen. So that, that's, that's where, and I, I think the next episode will be about processing and transferring of learning. So we can talk about it later. But in my opinion, these would be some of the things I, I would, you know, as the top of my head, that's what I would say. What about you, Ida? I think another thing that is um, interesting and important is this uh, role of, well, active participation, but there may be even more this space for participants to make active choices that you, in a way, um, you're in a, position where you have to make decisions and maybe decide between actions and I think this is where you very often um, 
yeah, where you, where you as a participant you engage in the process, in the experience, and this is then also these actions and these decisions is something that you can also reflect on afterwards to see why why did this uh, why did you make this decision or why did this action happen? And this is where I think um, the experience is not not just something that is around you, but you in a way are part of creating it also because what happens is based on your active choice and your active actions. So for me, that's interesting. I don't think it necessarily means that you cannot experience passively. I think you can. I think there is value also in in observing and in seeing what happens around you. But I think the most powerful experiences are the ones where you're an active participant and an active partaker. What about you, Natalia? For me, um, the most difficult part when you build this experience is how to make it relevant for everyone. And also mm. how to make it challenging, but not too challenging. Yeah, when people just fall out of experience because they are stretched too much. Luckily, it happened only once. It happened with only one participant who was particularly fragile. And then we touched upon some experience, which was perhaps psychologically unsafe for this person. Mm. But it may happen. And I think as educators, we need to be ready for that. But I think what happens way too much often when experience is not enough challenging. And then people don't get samely engaged. And um, yeah, and I think challenging, it's a good question, challenging where, but I guess it can be physically challenging, it can be mentally challenging, it can be emotionally challenging, or it can be holistic yeah. as a whole. Um, holistically no, challenging. But, but it makes me, you know what? It makes me think of this arousal theory from outdoor, actually, where we actually really talk about that. We are looking at really creating a, a, an ideal experience where people are, aroused enough in order to really be fully engaged in the experience and aroused mentally i don't think about other things right uh, and and if they if really if they are under aroused obviously the, what they will experience is boredom if they are over aroused they may uh, experience anxiety actually so so it's really important and and as you said the challenge is indeed how do you make because you have 20 people you have 30 people in your in your training room how do you you know where's the average how do you you know, how do you design the experience so that most of the people somehow get into a zone where they actually experience some, you know, serious excitement in order for them to... Uh, and when I mean excitement, I don't mean like, wow, this is cool, but more like, oh my goodness, what is happening? This novelty, this, uh, you know, uh, uh, experience uh, that, that is, is telling them that something is happening with them, you know, emotionally, uh, mentally, and so on and so forth. And it's, it's a challenge, actually. I think what can happen sometimes is also that you have a group, I mean, we also, we said this, that this experience is very often individual. It's something that you go through internally in a way as well. And of course, it's also based on your previous experience. So if sometimes something might trigger you in a certain way because of the life you lived before, and that's part of it. That's also, I mean, how it should be. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think what can happen sometimes is that in this, um, you have this setting, you are a participant, you go through a learning experience or you go through an experience. And maybe in your particular case, the experience is not the most eye-opening or the most exciting. Maybe it's even a little bit boring. And maybe there is someone else in the room who has a much more interesting experience, maybe because of the setup, maybe in this Limit 20 example, maybe Natalia's experience was actually the strongest one. And there are other people who experience it slightly less strong. And then hopefully the strength of a group experience is also that once you 
kind of move on and you actually discuss it and we will talk more about this maybe you can also understand something when you hear other people when when i hear natalia's experience of the same thing we just did and maybe it wasn't strong for me maybe it was even a bit boring but hearing what she went through it's still eye-opening for me and it's still a good learning experience so i think we should also maybe be well not so afraid of making it boring for some people um as long as they don't drop out and as long as we yeah, are I able to kind of um summarize the learning experience the full learning experience of the group in a way that makes sense to people yeah what i'm trying to say as well is that obviously in the group setting we create sort of a group experience but people mm. experience uh, it differently because they, each of them ca- go, go is going through individual experiential cycle mm. and yeah and i think it's also um, a little bit difficult sometimes to navigate between this group experience and this individual experiences yeah, which often might be i don't know sometimes polar completely like somebody is bored and somebody is crying <laughs> or, or uh, other way around so when we construct educational experience and going back to this critics which bogdi was highlighting for us so kindly what is the difference between creating an experience and manipulating well i think there's obviously there's there's the the very uh, important question of ethics whether you want to do that but i would even mm-hmm. i would even say if you want to do that it would probably be important to have some kind of a discussion with the group and to have some kind of agreement uh, about this i think that that would be something that would make sense for me it's true that you don't always get to do it but i i think it it is something relevant it is something that uh, you know needs to be clarified with them for example one of the things that i do in in um, in the trainings is i uh at the very beginning i also explain people that um all the exercises that we're going to go through are exercises that are uh, to one degree or another reflecting the reality of our lives and also making sure that whatever we do as trainers if we push some of our of their limits we do it in order to create learning mm-hmm. and that there is also the possibility for them to step out if for for some reason they don't feel comfortable mm. but stepping out doesn't mean you step out and you close the door and you leave and you have your cigarette or you do something else you step out you stay in the room in order to <laughs> what Ida said earlier to observe the learning experience because okay maybe emotionally or maybe even worse psychologically you are not a- able to cope with what is happening but stepping out and observing and not being directly emotionally involved in what is happening would still create a lot of learning more maybe on the cognitive level because of your capacity of observing and seeing wha- how the group is reacting and so on so for me this would be uh, a, a solution a way to work with let's say exercises mm-hmm. that are going a little bit in in a certain uh, direction from this perspective of, mm. of manipulating uh, and so on mm. i feel like manipulation is also somehow the act of pushing someone to do something that they wouldn't normally do or they wouldn't want to do that kind of goes against their values or the way that they behave and as we spoke about earlier very often i think in educational settings people are not really doing things out of the ordinary it's just a new set new setting that they're doing it in and maybe what is also new is again this surprise element and i think we should also again um i think it's important not to be afraid of keeping information 
from participants. Sometimes this is needed, I think, to create a, a good learn to to create a good setting or a good experience. Sometimes we don't. I mean, again, going back to the example of limit twenty, I, this experience works because we don't immediately reveal all the tricks or the all the way that this is created. Um, and I so and I think. In this case, you have a setting and you don't reveal all, this, all the things and then you see how people react to it. And for me, this is not yet manipulation because people in a way choose also how to act here. Um, so there is, I think there is a fine line, but not everything that is surprising is manipulation. And, and I go back to this idea of mimicking reality. Mm. I think Limit 20 does it that really perfectly. We, we could say, we could interpret this, oh, we are manipulating because we are having our rules and we are playing and stuff. But in real life, this is how things happen. We are not aware of everything that is, mm. you know, set up around us, all yeah. the rules that are there. Just imagine when you go, even on a holiday in a, in a culture uh, somewhere across on mm -hmm. the other side of the world, we don't know, even if we read, there will be things we are not aware of, right? Mm. So, so we would be in a, such an environment that would play these kind of tricks mm. on us in in any case. So, mm. so yeah, I, I think still we we need to we should not stop asking these questions as educators, mm. but we should not also be afraid of working with these kind of instruments because mm. because we we know that our, also our intention usually comes from a good place. We don't have an, the intention of really. Uh, provoking uh, psychological damage, uh, mm -hmm. physical damage mm -hmm. to our participants. We know that. And we've seen hundreds of people going through limit 20. So we know that it works. Yeah. Uh, and we know also, we are also trained how to be there for people who need the support uh, in, in that case. All right. I think we touched upon many different aspects of what experience is in the experiential learning. Yeah, thank you for sharing uh, some of your ideas on this tricky question in the end. And yes, there is a big part of what trainer prepares uh, as experience, but a big part of it actually are people who go through this experience. And that's why experiential learning or experiences actually are very different with different groups. And probably with this, we leave all these questions also for our audience and listeners to think about. Join Thank us you. in the next episode. See you. Thank you. Take care.